Good morning. Uh, I'm Christopher Preble, the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Thank you all for attending today. Uh, welcome also to those of you watching us on the Internet, www.cato.org. Um, I want to thank our participants, obviously. I also want to extend very special thanks today to the Open Society Institute and the World Affairs Council of Washington, D.C. Uh, they have generously supported uh, this program here, this forum today, and it is part of a broader program in which Cato scholars will discuss alternative strategies in the war on drugs in 11 different cities, courtesy of local World Affairs Councils over the course of the next eight months. So I want to get that out of the way right away. Thank you all very much. Um, a quick note, too, for our, uh, for our co-sponsor here, the World Affairs Council. They've handed out some flyers. You may have received this flyer. Uh, we note that the date for this event uh, is March 11th. That's not written on there. So March 11th is the date for this event uh, with um, uh, Peter Finn and Scott Wilson. Um, okay. Today's forum is an extraordinarily timely topic, uh, evidenced by our tremendous turnout today. Uh, as the Obama administration surveys the many, many different national security threats uh, confronting the United States, the increasing drug-related violence in Mexico must be on the agenda. Since January 2007, um, there have been more than 6,800 drug-war-related drug deaths in Mexico, and Mexican drug cartels continue to expand their operations in American cities. Washington's response so far has been to expand its prohibitionist efforts with the Merida Initiative, a U.S.-Mexico anti-drug trafficking program. Historically, however, prohibitionist policies have had little success in reducing the flow of drugs. Instead, those policies have led to increased turmoil and corruption. What alternative approaches should policymakers consider, and how do we build support for sensible solutions that for too long have been dismissed as politically impossible? We have an outstanding panel of experts to explore these issues. I'm going to introduce all four of them and, uh, and then get out of the way. The first speaker today is Ted Galen Carpenter, my friend and colleague, mentor over the many years, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. In addition to bad neighbor policy, bad neighbor policy, uh, uh, Washington's Feudal War on Drugs in Latin America. He's the author of seven other books on international affairs, including Smart Power Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America, Peace and Freedom, Foreign Policy for a Constitutional Republic, The Captive Press, Foreign Policy Crises and the First Amendment, and A Search for Enemies, America's Alliances After the Cold War. He's also edited, because that's obviously not enough work, 10 other books, and has published more than 400 articles and policy studies, including most recently... <laughs> Troubled Neighbor, Mexico's Drug Violence Poses a Threat to the United States, the 631st policy analysis published uh, just earlier this month. Uh, he's a frequent guest on radio and television. He uh, received his Ph.D. in diplomatic history from the University of Texas. Our second speaker today is Vonda Felbab-Brown. She is a fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution and an adjunct professor in the Security Studies Program at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. She's an expert on the interaction between illicit economies and military conflict and is the author of the forthcoming book, Shooting Up, Illicit Economies and Military Conflict, to be published by Brookings uh, later this year. Examines these issues in Colombia, Peru, Afghanistan, Burma, Northern Ireland, India, and Turkey. 
Her Ph.D. dissertation, Shooting Up, received the American Political Science Association's 2007 Harold Laswell Award for the Best Dissertation in the Field of Public Policy. She's the author of numerous policy reports and academic articles, including Peacekeepers Among Poppy, Counter-Narcotics Policy in Afghanistan, which was published in the Journal of International Peacekeeping in February, just this month, February 2009, Tackling Transnational Crime, Adapting U.S. National Security Policy in Latin America, published in National Security Review Forum, and The Intersection of Terrorism and the Drug Trade, which is published in James Forrest's The Making of a Terrorist. Our next speaker is my colleague Dan Griswold, director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. Since joining Cato in 1997, Dan has authored or co-authored many uh, studies on globalization, trade, and immigration, including the 2007 study, Trading Up, How Expanding Trade Has Delivered Better Jobs and Higher Living Standards. He's authored articles as well for the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, Financial Times, and other major publications, and has appeared on the major uh, television radio networks, including C-SPAN, CNN, PBS, BBC, Fox News. He's testified before congressional committees and federal agencies on a range of trade and immigration issues. Dan holds degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the London School of Economics. Our fourth and final speaker today is Ethan Nadelman, the founder and executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. Described by Rolling Stone as the point man for drug policy reform efforts, Ethan is widely regarded as the most prominent proponent of drug policy reform. In 1994, he founded the Linda Smith Center, a drug policy institute created with the philanthropic support of George Soros. In 2000, the growing center merged with, other, with another organization to form the Drug Policy Alliance, the leading organization in the United States promoting alternatives to the war on drugs. In 1993, he authored Cops Across Borders, the Internationalization of U.S. Criminal Law Enforcement, the first scholarly study of the internationalization of U.S. criminal law enforcement. And in 2006, he co-authored Policing the Globe, Criminalization and Crime Control in International Relations. He received his B.A., J.D., and Ph.D. from Harvard and a master's degree in international relations from the London School of Economics. So without any further ado, Ted Carpenter. Chris, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Uh, I've been writing on the topic of uh, drug corruption and violence now for uh, better than six years, the first time being a chapter in Bad Neighbor Policy, a book that was published in 2003. And at times I feel like uh, uh, Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day, because I, I seem to be reliving this topic from time to time. And every time I write on this issue, the situation in Mexico has become a bit worse than it was the previous time. And indeed, there has been a significant escalation in the violence, even since I completed the latest study in early December. Now, what we have seen in Mexico is a very sobering trend. In 2008, more than 5,300 people were killed in drug-related violence. And at the current pace for 2009, we're looking at something in the area of 8,000 dead. It is a carnage that is alarming already. To give you just an idea of what, uh, what the situation is like, in one two-day period, 
in late January, 18 people were shot, found shot dead in the northern Mexican state of Chihuahua, and another four in a neighboring state, those bodies on the property of the state-run oil company Pemex. And in just one city, Ciudad Juarez, more than 200 people have been killed so far this year. Violence in Tijuana, another border city, is so bad that the commander at Camp Pendleton has barred the Marines there from spending their leave time in Tijuana. A violence in the border cities is the worst, but the violence is spreading and spreading quickly. As just one incident, uh, a retired general of the Mexican Army was appointed to head up anti-drug efforts in the resort city of Cancun. Uh, within a matter of, I think, less than two weeks after he was appointed, he was assassinated. And all too typical of the situation in Mexico, the police chief and a number of his subordinates have been arrested and uh, are apparently in, involved in that crime. The violence in Mexico, as bad as it is, is no longer affecting just Mexicans. Uh, U.S. tourism, particularly in the border cities, is dropping and dropping rapidly. The State Department last year issued a number of travel alerts to Americans traveling in Mexico. One of those alerts indicated that the fighting was so bad that it was, and I quote, the equivalent of small unit combat. And the fighting involved the use of machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades. Mexico has already displaced Colombia as the kidnapping capital of the world. And as I note in the policy analysis, the violence is spilling across the border into the United States. American citizens, including law enforcement personnel, have been targeted by the drug cartels for assassination. There was an ABC television news segment just last week about the more than 300 kidnapping incidents in the city of Phoenix over the past year, a majority of those incidents involving the Mexican drug cartels. And Mexican drug gangs now operate in most American cities, virtually all the 50 largest cities, and in a good many smaller cities as well. The question is, this is bad, but where do we go from here? Alarm in the United States at long last is rising about the situation in Mexico. And that has generated, I think, some extreme analysis, uh, including the thesis that Mexico might become a full-blown failed state. The country could implode. Texas and other southwestern states are developing contingency plans in case that happens, that they need to handle a flood of refugees, hundreds of thousands, conceivably even a few million refugees coming from Mexico. Now, I take the position that the fear of Mexico becoming a full-fledged failed state is somewhat exaggerated. It's unlikely the violence, as bad as it is, is going to reach that level. It would have to increase quite a lot. On the other hand, that possibility cannot be entirely ruled out. At the beginning of this decade, I would say there was no more than maybe one chance in a hundred that Mexico would become a failed state. 
I would estimate it now as more like 1 in 20, perhaps even 1 in 15. Still a relatively unlikely scenario, but one that we cannot ignore. And even if that doesn't happen, the current violence is bad enough. Now, in response to the, uh, the violence in Mexico, policymakers and pundits have come up with a variety of solutions. One that is increasingly popular is to dramatically increase U.S. border security, indeed to seal the border, to quarantine the violence so that it at least does not drastically impact the United States. My colleague Dan Griswold will discuss that thesis in greater detail. Another one, which is the personal favorite of the Mexican government and uh, some liberals in the United States, is to tighten U.S. gun laws. Uh, The theory goes that the cartels are getting the vast majority of their weapons from the United States, and that is due to lax gun laws, particularly in the southwestern states. And if we would just tighten those gun laws, uh, the violence in Mexico would drop dramatically. Well, that panacea, I, I think, is even less logical than the notion of sealing the border. Let's remember, when we're dealing with the drug cartels, we are dealing with people who make their living operating in a black market in another commodity. Do we really think that those people would have difficulty getting guns on the vast international black market involving firearms? I don't think so. It's simply a little more convenient for them to do it this way. We need to face some rather troubling realities. Point number one, there is no way to suppress the drug trade now dominated by the Mexican cartels. The Merida Initiative, we've already uh, funded better than $400 million in what is going to be undoubtedly a multi-billion dollar, multi-year venture, is going to have little effect. This is pattern on Plan Colombia, and to give you the bottom line on Plan Colombia, despite uh, some now almost nine years of that plan, better than $5 billion. A GAO report that came out last year noted that cocaine exports from Colombia were up, not down. We have to remember that the global drug trade is a $300 billion to $350 billion a year enterprise. And Mexico's share is estimated uh, to be at least $25 to $30 billion. And one DEA official in Mexico City actually puts it at $60 billion. There's an inherent difficulty in estimating the size of an illegal enterprise, but it's big. I think that's fair to say. Moreover, global demand for drugs is growing, not shrinking. So the drug suppliers are in a very enviable position. Point number two, where we need to face reality. It is the illegality of drugs that creates a huge black market premium and enriches the cartels. About 90% of the retail price of most drugs is due to that black market premium. 
It gives the cartels enormous resources to bribe government officials or to hire hitmen to take out officials who won't be cooperative, who won't be bribed. To give you just one example of the kind of resources they have available and how they're putting those resources to use, over the past few months there's been a major bribery scandal in Mexico's attorney general's office involving the drug cartels. The bribes paid by one of the cartels in the area of $150,000 to $450,000 per month. We need to face reality on another matter. Because drugs are illegal, the most violence-prone criminal elements will dominate the trade. That is inevitable. The U.S. experience with the prohibition of alcohol in the 1920s and early 1930s demonstrated that clearly. During that period, the trade was dominated by the likes of Al Capone and Dutch Schultz. Today, the alcohol trade is dominated by the likes of Anheuser-Busch, Gallo Wines, and Jack Daniels Distillery. Now, this is an intelligence test for my drug warrior friends. Which situation is better? We need to face reality on another matter. Ending drug prohibition is the only lasting way to dampen the drug violence in Mexico. Now, without doing that, we may still get a temporary decline particularly if the Sinaloa and Gulf cartels, the two leading drug organizations, sort out the market and end their bloody turf fights. We've seen similar developments on a smaller scale in a number of American cities, that once the rival drug gangs kind of sort out the market, violence subsides for a number of years until you get new entrants and then there are more rivalries and the violence goes back up. There's another possible temporary fix, although Washington certainly wouldn't like it, and that is if the government of President Felipe Calderon would back off from confronting the cartels. After all, he was the one who really escalated this fight by calling in the military and adopts a policy of, and let's be blunt about this, appeasement. That step would certainly provoke wrath from Washington, but it might very well, at least for a time, cause a decline in the violence. But such a respite would be only temporary. The only long-term solution is to defund the cartels. And the only way to do that is to end drug prohibition. And I want to emphasize this point. It's not enough to simply have harm reduction as good as those reforms might be. It means legalizing the production and sale of drugs, not just decriminalizing the possession and use of drugs. If one doesn't do that, the black market premium is still intact and you're still going to have the most violent criminal elements dominating the trade. Drug legalization is certainly not a panacea. I'm the first to recognize that that one would still have a lot of social public health problems in a legalized system. We do with alcohol following the end of prohibition. We have problems with drunk driving. 
We have problems with alcoholism. But on balance, it is a much better system than what we had during the Prohibition era. On balance, this would be a far better system. We've waged a vigorous war on drugs now for nearly four decades, ever since President Richard Nixon declared that war. And really, even before that, we had a prohibition policy in place ever since the passage of the Harrison Act in 1914. The intensified drug war has produced horrific consequences, both domestically and internationally, most notably now with our southern neighbor, Mexico. I know there are policymakers out there, particularly who have career and budgetary interests in the current strategy, who are determined to perpetuate it. But I'm sorry, after four decades of a strategy not working, it is time to try an entirely different strategy. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, good morning. In my view, there are three uh, separate uh, policy questions that are frequently muddled together, which is not useful in the case of Mexico. The number one question is how to reduce violence in the market and suppress crime in Mexico to manageable levels. The second question is how to reroute trafficking from Mexico into some other area, possibly the Caribbean, where it used to be. And the third is how to significantly disrupt supply uh, to the U.S. and reduce the global drug trade in general. These three questions have different answers. Some of them uh, are complementary. Others are possibly at odds with each other. I'll really focus in my talk on question number one, how to reduce violence in Mexico. But let me very briefly uh, give answers to questions three, and I think I'll differ here with, with Ted and uh, a number of points, both analyst, analytic points and, and policy points. In my view, the answer to what to do about the uh, global drug supply is not legalization, but is focus on demand, prevention and treatment. Because legalization will likely lead to expansion of use, I think, very likely, and that has very serious problems for society. Now, uh, addressing demand is not easy. Uh, there are great difficulties, but it's been underfunded, and in my view, this is the way to go. Which is not to say, though, there is no place for supply-side policies. They can be important. They can be effective. I think they need to be uh, rethought, and I'll come back to it uh, in, in terms of Mexico. On how to route out uh, the uh, drug trafficking from Mexico, The real answer there, of course, is that actually the current violence, it's not uh, so problematic for this goal. In fact, uh, it's possibly, arguably, uh, facilitates this goal. Because drug, drug markets or illegal markets in general are normally not so violent. The drug market in Mexico today is an aberration. It's aberration with the state of drug markets in Mexico and it's an aberration in terms of the general violence that is associated with illegal markets and the drug markets. It poses very high transaction costs, not just for the state and for legal businesses, but it poses very high transaction costs for the drug trade itself. And in many ways, the drug market in Mexico today, which has many components to violence, violence uh, within cartels as uh, leaders are being picked off, media managers are being picked off, and new ones are coming up the ranks to replenish them, 
uh, violence between the trafficking organizations and violence between the state and the trafficking organizations, and of course violence between the trafficking organizations and society. And some of these are targeted strategic violence, uh, others is more random, and, and one of the unique things about Mexico is in fact the level of savagery that's associated uh, with the violence right now. But this, um, uh, this market is bad for the illegal business, and in many ways it's reminiscent uh, to what the uh, drug uh, and other illegal markets were in Afghanistan early, mid-1990s, uh, before the emergence of the Taliban or Somalia. The market is in prime need of a regulator to emerge. And the third question that links to it, and, and the one that I think is the fundamental question for the Mexican state and should be the fundamental focus for the U.S., is how to reduce the violence. Because here is where the state both has direct opportunities to intervene and because the irreducible elemental function of the state is to provide public safety. I think there are four ways in which we could imagine uh, that the regulator would emerge and the violence would subside. And some of them are really um, disquieting from my point of view and should be disquieting from the point of view of the society and uh, the state as well. The typical outcome uh, in, in disturbance of illicit markets is the uh, emergence of uh, a regulator or, or uh, accommodation between the trafficking organizations. This could be one, two, three, that at some point develop very good control within the ranks, within uh, defined territories of good sense of borders, and uh, minimize competitions are capable of resolving disputes among each other. And I would argue that this is the dominant form of how organized crime is, in fact, organized. The difficulties, of course, in, in, in the current state in Mexico is that the organizations are fractured both within and the fragmentation between them. The numbers of actors in the trade is so high that accommodation is not easy uh, to be reached. And one of the unique things about Mexico is also the inability of the insurgent groups uh, to really penetrate the trade. I mean, when I go back to the example of Afghanistan, what really happened was that the Taliban provided the, the control, the stability on the illegal market. We have seen similar uh, actions in, in Shining Path in Peru in the 80s, mm. uh, in Colombia with the Paras in the 1990s. Yet the EPR and the Zapatistas, you know, they pedal a bit, but they have really not been able to, to uh, penetrate the trade systematically. The second option, uh, the option that is my preferred outcome, and that clearly is what President Calderon has said on, is that the state prevails. And it succeeds in breaking down the organizations to a number of small groups uh, that uh, still continue with crime, but that are no longer capable of uh, imposing such high costs on the state in terms of violence, in terms of corruption. This is the model of crime in the United States and Western Europe. Crime exists. Uh, organized crimes as well as disorganized crime groups exist, but they cannot really threaten the state systematically and they cannot threaten the society systematically. Uh, the third outcome uh, is the one that uh, Ted alluded, and this is the reemergence of the corporatist model that Mexico had in the 60s and 70s, where the state itself really was the, the regulator of the drug organizations. The, the former Federal Security Directorate and Federal Justice uh, Police essentially arbitrated among the cartels, protected the cartels, and, and regulated them. A more benign version of this uh, model would be what the prominent strategist Tom Schelling uh, characterized as, as crime, as organized crime, as a licensed collector of rents associated with the franchise that police hold in individual cities. 
and I say, I say uh, more benign, although this is rather cynical view, uh, because uh, it doesn't penetrate the same levels of the state at the highest level that the Mexican 60s, 70s, early 80s model uh, represented. Still, I think this is a very um, difficult outcome. And fourth, and, and very uh, dangerously, uh, maybe even more so than the outcome number three, is that the state retracts. The state retracts because of the popular outcry against uh, the violence associated and because of its inability to prevail. Uh, just like the state is retracting in Pakistan from Fatah Norwest Frontier Province, the state would retract from portions of territories and essentially yield uh, its function as security provider. And this is, in fact, very typical of Latin America, where in many ways, in uh, many countries in Latin America, uh, the state controls the center and the periphery is up for grabs maybe for private security providers in the better outcomes, or uh, gangs in the favelas, the chimeras in Haiti, uh, the paras and the FARC in uh, Colombia, the maras in, in Central America. I, I was asked to talk about Plan Colombia, and, and I'll touch on it. Uh, and I want to stress that Plan Colombia really is, is very different than the Merida Initiative. Yes, they both are motivated by a desire to curb uh, trafficking and violence, but in both the, the design and the mechanics, uh, they are different. Uh, the Plan uh, uh, Colombia was essentially a, prime, a counter uh, insurgency strategy wrapped in counter narcotics, and counter narcotics did play a very critical role because a critical view was that it was necessary to eradicate the coca economy in order to uh, weaken the, um, the FARC uh, primarily and the ELN so that they could then uh, be confronted uh, by the state. And I think that was a fallacious uh, assumption that, that did not pan out. But nonetheless, um, Plan Colombia has had accomplishments. On the narcotic side, uh, these accomplishments are not many, if any. Uh, one of the definitions of success was reducing cultivation by 50% within six years, so through 2000. This has clearly not happened. In 2007, there was more coca cultivated in Colombia than there was at the beginning of the plan. The similar goal was uh, to reduce uh, cocaine production by 50%. Again, this has not happened. Uh, the the uh, amount of cocaine produced is maybe slightly smaller, but nowhere close to the goal of 50% reduction. So the uh, narcotics economy has remained very robust, despite the largest aerial spraying history and manual eradication, very intensive manual eradication. But a clear accomplishments have come on the counterinsurgency front. The belligerent groups have been uh, very significantly uh, beaten down. In the case of the Paras, they have been demobilized. Um, a problematic uh, move, potentially, we can discuss in Q&A, and, and one that uh, I'll come back to. But they have been removed, at least formally, from um, uh, the system. And the reasons why we see so many declines in homicides and kidnappings are to a large uh, extent due uh, to the demobilization of the paramilitaries. With respect to the FARC, clearly the state has succeeded uh, in significantly diminishing the, the fighting capacity of the FARC. In 2000, Colombia was a country on the brink, to borrow uh, Peter de Chazos from CSIS phrase. Uh, the belligerents were close to the city centers. They paralyzed uh, the countryside. Uh, land routes were unusable. This is clearly not, uh, not the case today. The FARC is no longer capable of mounting large-scale operations. Its fronters have been pinned down in territories. Logistical supplies have been uh, disrupted. And it it's, uh, has suffered very significant um, 
uh, internal structure problems as a result of hit at both medium and top level commanders. And I think one of the really serious uh, outcomes that the FARC faces is intended crumbling because of its inability to replenish the, the decapitation hits they have suffered. But not all is uh, uh, great in Colombia by any means, even on the security front. Very serious challenges uh, remain. I talked about the paras that have been demobilized. Well, new paramilitary groups are emerging, even if the state calls them bandas criminales. And by some account, there are as many as 10,000 of them. And they already provide very significant threats to state and security and hence economic activity in many areas. Still, the FARC has 9,000 combatants. That's a very large number of people under arms threatening various aspects of the domain of the state and threatening the society. Moreover, the state really did not move in in the socioeconomic sphere. Thus... um, Many of the security gains can very easily dissipate, and, and the underlying conditions in Colombia, the underlying conditions of insecurity and illegality uh, have not been addressed. In, in the, I guess, minute and a half that I have, let me um, uh, talk about the Merida Initiative. And... Um, while Plan Colombia was key uh, uh, counter-narcotics and, um, and counter-insurgency plan, the Merida Initiative is also uh, supposed to, to help combat uh, the truck trafficking, but it's pretty much a transfer of hardware and technology. And I would argue that this is not the, the, the most important uh, threat that the Mexican state faces. Really, the key for Mexico is to reform law enforcement apparatus that is extremely corrupt, and enable to sustain the pressure and the corruption of the cartels. And here technology might be helpful, but it's not the, the most important aspect. And also, uh, I think Mexico uh, today lacks a strategy, and there is not enough appreciation of how just simply a reaction, uh, blanket reaction by the military against the cartels is not likely to reduce violence. So let me, in the remaining 30 seconds, offer a very... Um, provocative strategy, where I I would argue that um, the state needs to rethink its law enforcement approach, even though it will still use uh, the military, toward an ink spot approach, something analogous to what uh, the Brazilians have been trying to do in favelas in recent years. And I'm reluctant to use Brazil because I think the verdict is still out on Brazil. More importantly, Uh, I envision a a phased um, approachment in which first thing that the state moves in with fair amount of massing forces in strategic areas. So it can hold these areas, clear them, uh, and so uh, it can focus on the most violent traffickers, the most violent organizations, and and reduce the violence in this area and establish the preponderance of the state. In the second phase, though, the state would... um, and the military would move toward a combined constabulary carabinieri approach combined with, uh, with uh, uh, community policing. And, and I don't see that in the Brazilian case, and I don't see that uh, in, in the plan that uh, uh, President Calderon um, uh, has. And finally, in the third stage, when uh, police reform has been uh, carried out, the police uh, would take over. And you know, the reason I, I, I uh, suggest that we still need the military forces in, in Mexico is because um, 
the police is just too weak and too corrupt to now provide the necessary public safety function, and the violence has escalated to very serious uh, levels. But this export strategy, a phased export strategy, uh, nonetheless needs to be combined with police reform and uh, with judicial reform. And finally, I think it's critical that uh, there is an establishment of an intelligence unit that does not simply collect information on all traffickers and engages in opportunistic uh, capture of any traffickers. But there needs to be thinking about, if I remove this trafficker, what kind of violence is it going to set among these organizations? What kind of violence is it going to set within organizations? So that at least in the initial phase, when the crime is so strong, there is more of a strategic engagement and um, strategic targeting of groups beyond we can move toward more generalized um, standard law enforcement approach. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, my bit role today is going to be to issue a warning uh, about a particular proposal that's especially popular uh, among members of Congress and on talk radio and cable TV, and that is let's just seal the border, uh, the 2,000-mile border, uh, with Mexico and just uh, hope that those problems uh, go away, but at least stop them from spilling uh, across the border. And, of course, the, the principal tool of this strategy would be a wall. We're already in the process of building 700 miles of the wall, but that leaves two-thirds of the border uh, unwalled. It would be the idea of extending that wall and uh, stationing uh, significantly more troops uh, along the border. Uh, I would like to argue today that any attempts to seal the border would be, one, expensive, two, futile, and three, uh, largely self-defeating. Building and manning a wall would be hugely expensive. We know from experience already that it costs about $3.2 million per mile uh, to build uh, the wall. If we were to build it from Brownsville to uh, uh, the Pacific Coast, you're talking over $6 billion just to build it. And then, of course, you have to maintain it uh, from the uh, natural elements and also uh, uh, vandalism uh, along the wall. Uh, Geographically, it's very challenging to build the wall. A lot of our border is canyon land, uh, the Rio Grande uh, River. How do you build a wall along that without sealing off uh, the river from Uh, ranchers, and recreational uh, purposes. And then, of course, you have not just the expense, but the violation of liberty, the condemning of property, private property uh, along there, American-owned private property. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, a number of members of Congress who rightly decry the Supreme Court's Kelo decision uh, enhancing the eminent domain powers of the government uh, seem all too willing to turn that same power Uh, against uh, private American landowners for this very uh, dubious project. You know, for all the attention on smuggling and illegal immigration, let's remind ourselves that the vast majority of goods and people crossing the U.S.-Mexican border every day come here perfectly legally. You know, after all, Mexico is our number third export market in the world. Uh, Only Canada and the European Union buy more American stuff. Uh, in our two-way trade relationship, they're number four behind those two and uh, China. And since NAFTA, the, the U.S.-Mexican trade has increased significantly faster than our trade with the rest of the world. I've, I've uh, made a couple of visits, two or three visits to Laredo, Texas. Uh, 
uh, and that is the single busiest transit point for U.S.-Mexican trade. Forty percent of our trade with Mexico comes uh, across the border at Laredo, most of it in trucks. In fact, there's, there's 9,000 trucks a day uh, crossing the very modern bridges uh, there in, in Laredo. And this is very important for a large swath of U.S. industry, and not to mention the border communities themselves. Is that part of sealing the border? <laughs> are we going to cut ourselves off uh, from this flow of trade? I, I probably shouldn't say that too loudly. There are some uh, members of Congress and commentators that would probably think that's a good idea too. Uh, and it's only natural as the U.S. and Mexican economy become more deeply integrated that the number of people crossing the border every day would increase significantly. In 2007, 7.4 million Mexicans entered the individual Mexicans entered the United States perfectly legally. And that was double what was entering uh, a decade ago. Uh, and again, perfectly legal. And because of multiple entries, something like, if today is a typical day, there will be 700,000 people entering the United States legally across our southwestern border. Just think of the implications if we were to cut ourselves uh, off from that. They're coming through uh, about 43 uh, ports of entry, the one at Laredo, uh, El Paso, Mexicali. They're, they're very busy, but they're also smaller ones uh, along the border. Most of these people coming into the United States are making multiple trips uh, a year. There are special pass where you can come over for two or three days to visit family. Uh, and, and that sort of thing. But the vast majority, they're non-immigrants. They're coming here legally to do business, to visit uh, relatives, tourists, business travelers. Most return to their home country of Mexico and elsewhere uh, within a few weeks, within a few days, sometimes the very same day they come, or, they come over. And this cross-border traffic is the lifeblood of these border communities on both sides of the border. In Texas alone, there were 40 million individual entries a year from Mexico. Again, in, in Laredo, uh, Texas, I've seen there's a bridge there, and you can just walk across over to Nuevo Laredo from the U.S. side over to the United States. Uh, many come over as, as tourists. A lot of them come over to shop. Uh, they line up in their uh, uh, big three brand uh, SUVs and pickup trucks to come over to Laredo to shop at what I'm told is one of the biggest and busiest Walmarts in the world uh, in Laredo, paying sales taxes, uh, taking those goods uh, back to Mexico. This is why you'll find most politicians and community leaders along the border don't want to seal the border. They would be horrified. And they're the ones who should be and are most concerned about the violence spilling over. But they know from their experience that sealing the border would be one of the worst uh, options. And it's self-defeating in terms of our own security, whether you're talking petty crime or uh, uh, terrorism. The best thing we can do to promote stability and democracy and good government in Mexico is to keep our markets open, uh, not just to goods, uh, but, but to people uh, crossing the border. The best jobs in Mexico are those along the, the border, in the Bequiladoras. I've also been to Monterrey, uh, Mexico. It calls itself the Na proudly calls itself the NAFTA city. They enjoy a standard of living there that's twice as high as the rest of Mexico. If, if, and then there's remittances that are sent back by immigrants, the best kind of foreign aid that's put directly to work in terms of investing in education, housing, <clears throat> medical care. If we were to seal the border, 
Uh, it would put millions of Mexicans out of work. It would eliminate some of the best-paying jobs in that society. It would deepen uh, frustration and uh, poverty. It would only feed the chaos and lawlessness uh, that we all would like to see uh, stemmed in Mexico. Well, let me close by, uh, by making a plea for another kind of legalization, uh, the legalization of work, which I think is inextricably linked to the, to the border issue. We need comprehensive immigration reform, as we have argued for several years here at Cato, so that peaceful, hardworking Mexicans can enter the United States to fill jobs temporarily here. Uh, you know, we're going to get through this recession eventually. The job market's going to recover, and we're going to be right back where we've been the last 20 years, with large-scale illegal immigration coming across between the ports uh, of, of entry. A temporary worker program would transform border enforcement. It would drain the swamp of smuggling and document fraud uh, that uh, facilitates criminal behavior. It would encourage millions of people here illegally now to come forward and cooperate with law enforcement. It would free up resources on the border to go after real criminals and terrorists instead of going after janitors and people who want to hang uh, drywall and flip hamburgers. Uh, former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff, uh, and I agree with him on this, he told Congress in 2007 when they were considering comprehensive immigration reform, he said, quote, this regulated channel for temporary workers would dramatically reduce the pressure on our border, aid our economy, and ease the task of our law enforcement agents inside the country. There is an inextricable link between the creation of a temporary worker program and better enforcement at the border. Sealing the border won't solve the common problems that we have with our good neighbor, our good neighbor Mexico. It would only make those problems worse. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think the most useful thing I could do is to try to put the situation in Mexico into a bigger global and historical perspective. And the perspective I think I bring to this is essentially somebody who's trying to figure out what's the rational, sensible, pragmatic, what I've sometimes called the mensch-like approach to dealing with a drug problem in the, in the U.S. and around the world. I mean, that, that's really what it is. You know, one of the things, I, I've come to Cato every few years, and I, typically what happens is the, the, my libertarian friends think I'm really secretly a liberal. And my liberal friends think I'm really secretly a libertarian. And I think the LaRoucheites doing the song and dance outside think I'm really the illegitimate child of Queen Elizabeth and George Soros. But, um, um, but basically, I say my political view is best described as, a, as what might be called social justice libertarian, right? That I actually do think the state can play constructive roles in important areas. Um, and that I am concerned about, about you know, broader justice issues. Um, but I also think I probably care about freedom a little more than is commonly the case among many liberals and most liberals, in fact, in the traditional American political culture. Um, but in looking at this drug thing, it's always fascinated me because it seems from an intellectual perspective, there seems such an extraordinary disparity between what anybody would think would be a rational policy and what's actually been the policy for much of the last century. I mean, intellectually, it's just a challenge. It's fascinating. And from a moral point of view, the notion that you should be locking up millions of people 
turn into criminals because what they put in their body just also seems patently immoral and absurd. And the notion that somehow we have to use the criminal justice system to regulate these particular drug markets, I think also is a thoroughly untested proposition. You know, I lack Ted's confidence in terms of just saying legalization is clearly the answer, but I'm not with Vonda either who says, well, I'm against legalization. Who knows what would happen to use? We actually don't know what would happen. We haven't really tested the current system. And the question becomes, how do we maneuver our way from the current disaster to some much more, much more sensible, effective uh, humane approach that results in the least amount of harm, both from drugs and the least amount of harm from our current drug control policies. To my mind, the optimal policy is the one which most effectively reduces the harms of both drugs and of government policies. Now, the Mexico um, thing, you know, I mean, I to some extent agree with Vonda's analysis, and Ted's for that matter, in this way. In terms of the short term, I think the Colombia model is sort of interesting, right? The Colombianization, the Plan Colombia, what Vonda described, Plan Colombia was basically sold by Barry McCaffrey, the drug czar, who had previously been the head of Southcom, right, essentially as a counter-narcotics, counter-anti-cocaine strategy, when he and most other people knew it was really about trying to create better political stability, knock down the FARC, try to get an upper hand on the right-wing paramilitary militaries, provide security, safety of markets, all the good things that U.S. foreign policy ostensibly strives to do. And that to some extent, as she pointed out, it was somewhat successful in that regard. The government did get the upper hand. FARC is weakened. Paramilitaries are weakened. Uh, The drugs keep flowing. And the U.S. government has basically made clear that ultimately the flow of drugs is not really what's most important. Right. I mean, Uribe has been a stalwart ally of the U.S. government and the Bush administration, and he said the right things. And even if the policy has been a failure in terms of drug control, that's okay, Because on some level, there is an underlying recognition within the U.S. government elsewhere that the drugs are going to keep flowing one way or another from some place. And that what you need to do is to minimize the negative consequences associated with that. Right. Now, the interesting question for Calderon in Mexico is to what extent might that be the answer as well? I mean, let's face it. Mexico has been shipping marijuana and heroin to the United States for at least 70 years and maybe longer. You know, it's a major transit you know, country on cocaine. It's huge on methamphetamine. Uh, it's, that's not going to stop no matter what. And this has continued for many, many decades. And there have been periods of outbreaks and violence and not. There have been two times when the Nixon administration, I think it was the Reagan administration, actually closed the border for a little while. We've had those kind of emotional rough members of Congress getting all excited and condemning Mexico and all this. And, of course, the Mexicans always assume the actually the absolute worst about U.S. intentions. They always assume that it's not really about drugs. It's really just about the U.S. putting their thumb in the Mexican eye and trying to stomp on them and accomplish other objectives. And, of course, that's not true either. Now, can Calderon do the Uribe strategy? Can Merido, which is a different plan, as Vonda pointed out, actually be effective? I think over time he will. I think over time he will. I mean, when you look at this global thing over the last 30 or 40 years, you know, it was Burma 15 years ago. And 25 years ago, it was the northwest frontier of Pakistan. And 15, 20 years ago, it was Peru and Sendero Luminoso, where people thought that state was about to go under. And before that, it was Bolivia, not under Evo Morales, but under, you know, the corrupt narco generals or what have you. You know, 15 years ago, it was the Caribbean where the drug traffickers were taking over the islands. I mean, essentially, essentially... (coughs) You have a system that's built up over the last hundred years, basically a global drug prohibition regime that relies overwhelmingly and disproportionately on criminal laws and criminal justice controls to try to control this market. 
Now, what we know from this century of experience is that ultimately prohibition does not represent the ultimate form of regulation, that prohibition, in fact, represents the abdication of regulation. It represents the abdication of regulation, that what you don't, when you prohibit, whatever persists remains entirely unregulated. And what that means is that whatever is constantly popping up around the edges. So it popped up in Bolivia, popped up in Peru or Colombia or Turkey or Burma or or you name it. And right now it's popped up in Afghanistan and it's popped up in Mexico. And we're not even talking about Guatemala and other parts of Central America, which make Mexico look like, a, you know, a, 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 whatever the expression is, you know, a, a walk in the park. Right. Um, and the Caribbean is sort of off the front pages, but also now that's going to keep happening. Right. I mean, it, the way we're going, if we continue with the current policies, you know, in 10 years, we'll have another seminar at Cato or Brookings or whatever it might be, and it won't be Afghanistan one month and Mexico another. It will be, I don't know, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, or maybe the, all the stands getting together to produce this stuff. Um, maybe it'll be Venezuela. I don't know. But what we know is that given the forces of supply and demand, given that kind of push-down, pop-up dynamic, given the fact that when you push down one place, it will pop up somewhere else, given the fact that where it tends to pop up tends to be a result of lack of effective sovereign authority, particularly entrepreneurial culture, um, good proximity to drug markets, Colombia and Mexico, for example. I mean, whatever. There's some weakness in a system allows it to pop up, like a disease beginning to manifest in that part of the body which is most vulnerable. That's what we've done for the last 30 or 40 years. And if we don't change direction, that is what we're going to be doing for the next 30 or 40 years. Right? And in fact, the way the policy persists to some extent is that you don't keep anybody around in government drug policy for too long because you can't maintain your intelligence and self-respect for too long and keep doing government drug policy. I mean, it just becomes self-evident that you need to change direction. Now, I am, however, feeling optimistic. Um, and I guess I need to feel optimistic fairly often to do the job I do and have the pursuit I do. But I actually think things... There is more bubbling right now that gives me reason for hope than I can ever remember in the few decades I've been involved in this. Um, I think that there are things happening around the world that bode very well, and I think that ultimately the answer for Mexico, there's a partial answer about whether they get their control over this thing. But the long-term answer, whether for Mexico or for the next Mexico or in the next Mexico after the next Mexico, is going to involve some form of evolution and transformation in the global drug control regime. Right? Now, I, I don't want to sound, I'm going to give an optimistic spin here. I don't want to get anybody to think I'm delusional about this. Let's, let's remember, we have a global drug prohibition regime that is embedded in the laws and to some extent culture of virtually every country in the world. Right? We have countries, are, there are virtually no legalization countries of any sort. Uh, you know, there is immense, powerful prison industrial complex built up in our country and to some extent similar manifestations elsewhere. Uh, you know, concerns over law and order and security keep going. Concerns over drugs keep going. I mean, all of these things, I understand. Uh, but I also believe that this struggle, this struggle for a more sensible, rational drug policy is a multi-generational struggle. 
I do think of this in those terms. I think about the struggle to end the drug war and to reform drug prohibition the way people think about the struggles over civil rights and women's rights and gay rights and even the abolition of slavery and the slave trade. These are multi-generational struggles that go through their ups and their downs, but the key is persisting with it and maintaining a core set of principles and working and thinking strategically to accomplish that. Now, when I look around the world just over the last 10 years, I mean, take Europe. Europe's the one place actually which has slowed down and reform. But since the late 70s, beginning with the Dutch and then the Swiss and others, they have, they began to provide international global leadership in a new way of dealing with these things. They move forward on things like, like harm reduction and reduce, stopping the spread of HIV AIDS with needle exchange and supervised injection facilities and experimenting with prescribing heroin to drug addicts and decriminalizing cannabis and decriminalizing drug possession and putting public health people in charge of their drug control sections and beginning to look in the whole drug courier thing in a way where they make cost-benefit decisions rather than just stock their prisons full of things. So Europe has provided a model, and they've now lagged a bit. Some of the conservative forces, some of the crime issues that have risen up over immigration issues have gone on to the drug thing. So they're kind of at a standing still thing while other regions are beginning to pick up steam. Now, to some extent, the most surprising one in the last number of years has been in Asia. I mean, Asia was typically lockstep with the U.S. on the lock them up, cut off their heads type approach, right? You know, the Chinese remember the horrible opium wars and other Asians remember, you know, the, the, the very, very moralistic thing. But in the last 10 years, they've become freaked out about the spread of HIV AIDS. And they've seen that with dynamic capitalist economies, you have dramatic increases in illicit drug use as well. So what do you now see? I was in Malaysia over the summer, and you now see needle exchange and methadone programs in Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, China, Russia, Iran, huh? Unimaginable just five or ten years ago. I was at a conference and the deputy drug czar of Malaysia stands up and says, we have three components to our national drug policy, supply reduction, demand reduction, and harm reduction. I said, did I just hear a Malaysian say that harm reduction is part of official national policy? I mean, harm reduction, which the U.S. government has typically said is just legalization in sheep's clothing, right? That was stunning. When the, when the minister of justice, the Ayatollah of Iran, stood up a few years ago and issued a fatwa declaring that needle exchange and methadone maintenance were okay under Sharia law, that was stunning. I only wish that the comparable Christian mullahs in our own country would do the same sort of thing. Right? But, I mean, Asia is evolving. They're not going to legalize. They're not having a debate. They don't want to talk about human rights and drug users. They don't want to talk about legalization. But there's a shift going on. And part of what it meant was that the U.S. was becoming increasingly isolated in its only crackdown, anti-harm reduction, no discussion type policy. Now, Latin America has always been, I think, the most interesting. And I've been involved since the late days. I remember going to seminars at the Inter-American Dialogue, Brookings Institution, Council on Foreign Relations. And they typically... It's what, and also it's online in America. And it would be what I would call the tale of two dialogues, right? You know, you'd have the formal session during the day, and, and everybody would talk about, well, you know, we need to reduce the supply, and we need to reduce the demand. And the proper combination of uh, crop eradication and crop substitution and alternative development, and let's respect one another's sovereignty, of course, and... Uh, Good, I think we're done for the day now, right? And then you'd go out, you know, that evening and have a few drinks. You know, maybe if the Pisco Sour in Peru or whatever, wherever you're having your drinks. And a whole other dialogue would happen. And one-third of the people who are participating in the day would go, you know, I'll tell you something. The only answer here is legalization. And another third would say, you know, you're probably right, but there's no point in talking about it because we're never going to get anywhere. It's not politic. And the last third would say, say what? 
You want to give drugs to my kids? And the end of discussion. And then you go back and have the same old, same old. And ultimately, a lot of these discussions in mainstream organizations were about putting this issue on the back burner. But now part of what's happened over the last few decades is that discussion over the Pisco Sours has bubbled up into the mainstream discussions. There's a sense of an ongoing and cumulative and arising frustration. And so what you see is more and more Latin American leaders, some in office, some formally, stepping up and saying, enough, enough already. This doesn't make any sense. We need a different approach. Right? You saw President Fox saying in, in early in his administration, you know, the only answer may be legalization. Oh, sorry I said that. Jorge Castaneda, the former foreign minister, before he became foreign minister in Mexico, saying in Newsweek, legalization may be the only answer. Former advisor in Colombia, ex-presidents of Colombia, former president Bacha of Uruguay, here, there, everywhere, popping up saying these things, and then quickly, whoop, step back before the U.S. gets really angry, right? But it's really changing, and it's why what happened last week when this Latin American Commission on Drugs and Democracy co-chaired by three former very distinguished presidents, uh, uh, Cardoso from Brazil, Zadio from Mexico, and uh, Gaviria from Colombia, came out with a report which you can find at drugsanddemocracy.org. Right? It's called Towards a Paradigm Shift. Now, I know that among the 17 members of this commission, some thought legalization was the answer, some did not. Many know that you need to move towards a fundamental paradigm shift. What I also know is that with these 17 guys, including the three former presidents signed on to, which was a far-reaching document calling for considering the legalization of cannabis and for the decriminalization of possession and for a paradigm shift and using all sorts of other language, using the phrase prohibitionist, prohibition over and over and over in a way that all the previous groups always ran away from, that that's significant. And I know that if there's a sustained effort to collect the signatures of hundreds of more distinguished current and former Latin American leaders, that this thing could have real impact. This has the potential to open this thing up. Now, finally, come to the U.S., because what everybody says is the U.S. won't change, what can change? But some things are happening. I was struck in late December when the Attorney General of Arizona, Terry Goddard, son of a former governor, considered a legitimate candidate for governor, said, you know, we've got to talk about legalizing marijuana. I don't know if it's the right answer, but the Mexican gangs are making a lot of money from this stuff. And a few weeks later, the city council of El Paso, Texas, in an expression of support for its sister city across the border, said, we're not calling for legalization, but we need a debate, right? And I have to, I mean, I'm lo- just looking around, so I can tell you that this year there are going to be more bills on cannabis decriminalization and legalization being introduced than ever before. I'll tell you that in Washington, D.C., in Senator Jim Webb, we have a new champion. I mean, Senator Webb in March 07 asked, do you want to be considered for vice president? He goes, I don't want to be considered for anything until I figure out why America's got so many people behind bars. And he started holding hearings, and then the drug issue kept coming up, and he understands that drug war is driving this thing. He's calling for the creation of an independent commission, not unlike the Schaefer Commission that came up under the Nixon administration, which Nixon repudiated, but which nonetheless opened up the debate. Right. And Obama, Obama said a lot of the right things, you know, and the day after he was inaugurated, the White House said now supports federal funding of needle exchange, now supports eliminating the crack powder disparity. He called for a paradigm shift in drug policy. He said, I don't want the DEA raiding those medical marijuana facilities anymore. And when the DEA kept doing it right after the election, he said, wait a second here. Right. I'm not saying he's leaping forward, but there's room to open things up. You look at congressional leadership, Pelosi and George Miller, Barney Frank, John Conyers, uh, Henry Waxman. uh, You know, I mean, these are all stalwart allies who understand what drug law reform is about. Dick Durbin in the Senate, same thing, now chairing the House, the Senate subcommittee on crime. Who's chairing the House subcommittee on crime? Bobby Scott from Virginia. He gets it. And who's chairing the appropriations subcommittee with oversight of the drug czar's office? Dennis Kucinich. 
This is a new world. What that means is that the ability to start to connect these dots. I have to tell, when this Michael Phelps thing, you know, the Olympic guy smoked a bong. Oh, my God. 23-year-old smoked a bong in South Carolina, no less. You know, but, I mean, the, the out, for, for all those public shaming escapades that went on. And then I could not believe for the first time I've ever seen the number of columnists and supposed you, know, you name it, talk, radio, web, whatever, clown, saying, this is ridiculous. I mean, we got a president who smoked, and when he was asked if he inhaled, he said, wasn't that the point? Right? <laughs> and he was preceded by somebody else who wouldn't admit it, but we know he did it. And another guy who said he didn't inhale, and maybe he didn't eat it. But I mean, the point is, we haven't had a president for a long time who can honestly say he never smoked. And we're going to condemn Michael Phelps for smoking a bong after he won 14 gold medals or whatever? I mean, so the point is, and, and meanwhile, of course, the fiscal deficits at the states. What brought down alcohol prohibition with a thud in a few years was the economic depression. Why spend billions enforcing unenforceable laws when, in fact, you could be earning tax revenue us instead? And I'll tell you what California is going through now. What a circus. I mean, you know, I mean, but California, other states, massive deficits. I bet, and I want to do the polling on this as soon as possible, that support for taxing and regulating marijuana like alcohol, that the time basically is getting there. That I bet in parts of the West right now, you'll see close to 50 percent of the public saying, let's make it legal, treat it like booze. So the truth is... I see change afoot. I think it's happening. The fact of the matter is, the economic argument alone is not going to be enough. That what's happening in Afghanistan or Mexico is not going to be enough, right? The need to stop the spread of HIV, AIDS, and hep C, whatever, in parts of the world is not going to be enough. You know, the kind of cultural hullabaloo around Michael Phelps and other people being outed as marijuana use, other drugs use, is not going to be enough. But it's going to be the consistent pushing on all of these fronts for opening up a dialogue. I really believe that simply insisting now for a full and open and honest debate with all options on the table is the objective. It's what El Paso was trying to do. It's what the Arizona Attorney General was trying to do. It's what these former presidents in the Latin American Commission are trying to do. It's the effort to bring it above ground, to insist on open and honest debate. I am stunned and demoralized when I talk to people at the highest levels of the U.S. government in past administrations and say, have you ever considered doing any kind of strategic analysis of, of alternative strategies or what if we tried to decriminalize or what if we thought about this? And they say, No. The intelligence agencies, there, are, there is no critical intelligence. You look at INR and the State Department, you look at the intelligence, they're not allowed, they're scared to even think about alternatives. That's what needs to end. And the truth is we've known for a long time that the defenders of the status quo, what they most fear is not the person saying legalization is the answer. What they most fear is an open, honest discussion where all options are on the table, including the variety of regulatory, i.e. legalization options, where they get a chance to be exposed to fresh air and debated and considered. Since ultimately we know it's not as if there's going to be an 18th Amendment of drug prohibition that gets repealed, and there's not going to be a Berlin Wall of drug prohibition that comes tumbling down. This is going to be a step-by-step incremental process. The notion, what would happen if we legalize, is not the real question, because it's going to happen in a step-by-step approach. The question becomes, to what extent? And how do we best bring this whole fuming, stinking $300 billion a year underground economy more and more out of the stench, out of the swamps, into some place where it can be effectively controlled and regulated in ways that are consistent with science, health, compassion, and human rights? Thank you. Thank you all.
uh, excellent presentations. We have about 20 minutes for questions. Uh, we have a few ground rules here at Cato. You've probably heard them before. Uh, please wait for the microphone. That's precisely for the people watching on the Internet and a few outside. Uh, wait for the microphone before speaking. Please identify yourself and your affiliation. And since we have four panelists here, if your question is intended for one of the panelists, please indicate that. And uh, please, in the interest of allowing for as many questions as possible, please avoid uh, speech-making or, at a minimum, uh, adopt the Jeopardy rule, which is to phrase your speech in the form of a question. So, um, uh, Right there at the rail. Uh, yes, Maria Pena with FA News Services. Um, the gist that I'm getting from most of you is that you are, in a sense, supporting legalizing the drug trade. But, you know, the Mexican problem is an issue that's here and now, right now, and it deserves immediate answers. And I'm just wondering if you're, if you're proposing um, alternatives that would work or would address the issues in the hearing now, uh, besides the fact that a lot of people oppose legalizing drugs because of the health and social consequences. So if you could address both those issues. Yes, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, at least uh, as an interim step, I think the United States uh, needs to stop uh, encouraging, badgering, pressuring the Calderon government to wage a full-scale war against the drug cartels. That has been a thoroughly counterproductive strategy, and unfortunately, it is all too typical of the approach Washington has adopted with numerous drug source countries. We basically uh, put tremendous pressure on the governments in those countries to wage war on major economic constituencies in their countries. Not surprisingly, that causes... Uh, further distortions and often leads to uh, greater uh, instability in those societies. So at the very least, uh, the medical admonition, first do no harm, at least back off and stop asking the Calderon government to do the impossible. That that would be a useful first step. Do any of you want to? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I, I, in fact, spoke of a strategy. I mean, first of all, I, I did not uh, support uh, legalization. Um, I think we have had examples of legalizations. We can just think of China before the 1900s and the enormous addiction rates, which is not to say that it would inevitably happen, but I think there is a very serious questions about uh, increased use as a result of legalization. But uh, th that's, I think, separate from, from Mexico, and you correctly identified. The strategy I argued for Mexico is not the retraction of the state, but it is a better strategy by the state more focused strategy, one recognizes that simply, blanketly um, interfering with the illegal market today is probably going to generate greater violence because the state is so weak and institutions are so corrupt. But that doesn't mean that the state should persist in being weak. So the fundamental response of the state, the fundamental irreducible function is public safety. But what it means, however, is much smarter strategy in how the uh, state uses its military forces, its law enforcement apparatus, and a very serious uh, police and um, uh, judicial reform in Mexico with respect uh, for human rights. And let me add here that I think the inescapable issue uh, that frequently gets, gets uh, missed is demand reduction, not just in the West, not just in the North, although it is absolutely essential there, 
And it is right that simply incarcerating traffickers has generated greater problems, has not, not reduced consumption, has generated very serious and enormous costs. Simply focusing on supply has equally been ineffective. Supply, uh, reduction, supply strategies are important, but they need to become much, more, much smarter. But the key is public health approach uh, toward use and demand reduction. And this needs to be undertaken in Latin America as well, including in Mexico. Uh, there was another hand in the back. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Uh, Sean Waterman from uh, United Press International. I've uh, got uh, two questions. Um, one uh, for, uh, for Ted. Um, could, you said that, um, you know, the problem with decriminalization is that you don't defund the criminal organizations. Could you discuss the Dutch uh, uh, example in that context? I mean, why, why isn't it the case that the most violent drug gangs dominate the still illegal production uh, and distribution of, of, of marijuana in, in, in Holland. And uh, my second question would be for, um, for Ms. Felbab-Brown. Could you discuss, you, you sketched, I mean, despite you did outlay, lay out a strategy uh, uh, for Mexico, but nonetheless, I would say the picture that you painted there is rather bleak. Um, would you discuss the implications of that for U.S. policymakers and planners? I mean, we hear that Texas is drawing up contingency plans for, for you know, flood of refugees over the border. We, uh, we know that the uh, U.S. Joint Forces Command in, in, uh, uh, in its joint operating environment report says that the military's got to consider the possibility of a sudden rapid collapse of the Mexican state. I mean, is this just scaremongering or is this sensible Thanks. preparation for something? bad that might happen. Thanks, Sean. Okay. Uh, the first part, I think what you see in Holland, and we've seen it in a number of other countries as well, is uh, you do get relative stability, a decline in violence uh, when there has been agreements, either formal or informal, to uh, divide up the market and uh, avoid the kinds of turf fights that we have seen. What bothers me about Mexico is, uh, first of all, you're dealing with a country that is both rather large and with uh, great proximity to the largest uh, demand market in the world. And I don't think we're going to see that trade fade. And unless you do get some uh, agreement among the cartels uh, to share the market, to divide up the market, uh, I think you're going to see this level of violence at least at a rather high level. Now, as I indicated in my remarks, I could visualize a, a temporary decline in violence. I certainly hope that's going to happen. But such declines do tend to be temporary because you can't uh, guarantee you're not going to get other entrants in the market that will disrupt this uh, market-sharing agreement. And... Uh, the fact that Mexico is on our border puts this problem in a, a special category. It's not like dealing with a small Caribbean island or troubles in Bolivia or even uh, troubles in, in Burma or Turkey. This is something that is directly on our border, and uh, any adverse development impacts us in a, in a disproportionate way. Vanda, do you want to take a question, too? Uh, sure. <clears throat> The Mexican state is nowhere 
close to collapse. It is not a failing state. If you out of the states in Latin America, the Mexican state is one of the strongest states. However, it is clearly struggling uh, with establishing public security. To a large extent, the violence on the illegal market is the result of state actions against the markets in the 1990s and more significantly in the 2000s. What, and associated with this are spillover effects across the border. In terms of violence, some of the crime is taking place in, in U.S. border cities. It's affecting uh, community lives. People are scared to travel across the border for, for economic activity. It's already affecting uh, the U.S. What... However, I think that the focus for the state needs to be, or what worries me is not that the state will disintegrate. What worries me is that because of uh, popular uh, reaction, because of its inability to succeed, the state will retract and abdicate the responsibility for public safety. And other alternative governance structures, undesirable ones, are likely to emerge. This does not simply mean urging the state in an all-out let's go shoot up everyone type of approach. That's obviously not what is needed. The state needs to be reformed. Its justice institutions need to start functioning. And there has been good moves. The move from the inquisitorial to the accusatorial system is clearly a positive one. Police needs to be uh, uh, reformed because police needs to be who provides law enforcement uh, in, in every country. But the state needs to think strategically about how this is going to be accomplished. And the U.S., I think, needs to help the Mexican state, the Mexican government, think about what strategy is the one that's going to reduce violence and return the country to normality with crime, just like there is crime in Europe, just like there is crime in the U.S., but crime that does not permeate all the institutions like it used to, like it does in um, uh, Guatemala, and crime that does not... Uh, that is not capable of, of generating this level of violence to local communities and more broadly throughout the country. Okay. Uh, uh, one more question there. Um, right there. Hi, Rita Stankwitz. I just represent myself, and I only know what I read in the newspapers. But there's a group we're leaving out here. Does anyone have any credible polls on what the millions of people who are called ordinary Mexicans feel about all of this, what they'd like to see done here. So far as I know, there's maybe 80 million people who live down there who might have a say in this. What do they think? Anyone know of a credible poll of the Mexican populace? The early uh, public opinion surveys uh, indicated uh, very strong support for Calderon's strategy of bringing the military in and taking a very hard line toward the cartels. That support has been dropping dramatically as the level of violence has has risen, and it's clear that the cartels are at least holding their own, and I, I would argue, in fact, more than holding their own in this fight. Uh, I think there, there, there are a couple of dangers uh, that, that we could see emerging in Mexico. One is uh, the complete disillusionment with the Calderon government. And let's remember the, the total context here. Mexico is going to be suffering severely from the economic recession afflicting its northern neighbor, the economic recession that's aff- afflicting uh, the economy globally. Uh, the plunge in oil prices certainly has not helped matters. Um, and that in some ways strengthens the relative economic power, the relative position of the cartels. 
Um, I think a more likely really bad case scenario is not the failed state model, but it is uh, kind of an informal narco state model in which the cartels really do become the power behind the throne and that no Mexican government uh, can dare anger the cartels without uh, incurring a, a great many problems. I think that's the, the more likely uh, danger that we could, we could see. Ethan, do you know any more about the polling? On you, you mentioned kind of in passing that you'd wanted to see some polling. Well, you know, it's, I don't know the polling precisely. I know that what polls do show is a growing concern with drug abuse within Mexico, that, you know, Mexico for a long time had lots of drugs around, but very little problems with abuse of illicit drugs. I know the other thing that's happening is that the conversation about decriminalization basically did not exist in Mexico. Um, but now it's bubbling up all over the place. Um, it's not just this commission I mentioned, but it's also proposals, bill, bills being introduced in the Mexican Congress. Um, it's, it's, you know, discussions happening in the media and whatever. There seems to be some willingness to consider something. There's a reason uh, Barry McCaffrey, the former drug czar, went down to Mexico a few months ago, and he wrote up a report uh, for people at West Point. Actually, if you go to the, the Drug Policy Alliance website, drugpolicy.org, you can find McCaffrey's thing. You can find the commission report I mentioned. And, you know, he, uh, you know, he also talked about growing discussion about this decriminalization, legalization stuff, while he described the other issues as well. Um, I just want to just if I could add quickly to the points that people were saying before, you know, I mean, part of, I think, what helped in the Colombian case when the government, you know, part of what happened was President Betancourt in the early 80s really did sort of let go so much that the Pablo Escobars and Carlos Ledes, the major traffickers of the 80s, really did gain the upper hand in significant parts of the country. And then they had to struggle to gain the upper hand over a period of 10 or 15 years. I mean, you know, making accommodations with the FARC, with the traffickers, with everybody else. Part of what proved successful, I think, was working very closely with U.S. and maybe other foreign government intelligence agencies taking advantage of their very sophisticated devices, intelligence, and listening devices in order to figure out how to take apart the most powerful organizations. I think that ultimately Calderon has to find some way in order to gain reassert government sovereignty in this area. And if in the end he's right, Ted's right, that in the end this whole thing gets quiets down, but you still, whoever's president or else still is watchful, I think right now even Uribe, Uribe sounds like a tough guy, but, you know, he's got, you know, closets in his, you know, bones in his closet as well. And he also knows you can only push so far. So a certain accommodation happens. But what you don't want to have is somebody, an organization that is so powerful that they can just give their finger to the state and people cow in, you know, intimidation. Did I, did I see a hand uh, uh, right there at the rail? And while um, I want to re restate this because, Ethan, uh, I, was, I was rushing him a little bit. It's drugs and democracy toward a paradigm shift. Statement by the Latin American Commission on Drugs and Democracy. It's at, it's at your website, which is also drugs and democracy. But also drugsanddemocracy.org. Uh, right there, yes, sir. Last question. Hi, my name is Pablo. I'm a student at Georgetown University. Um, the, my question goes through into regards of what to do with these organizations that have that have evolved from being just transporters of drugs. As you said, there weren't this, the consumption in Mexico has gone up the last 10, 15 years significantly, we used to only be traffickers into the United States where the real center of consumption was. What to do with this well-oiled machines that are, are well-organized crimes? In the big spots in the city, in the cities in Mexico, the, they have, there has been a reduction in drug dealings, but there has been an increase in kidnappings. So how, how do we prevent from going from one crime to an even worse crime? 
Well, you know, I mean, it, there's always that question. It, it, I mean, to take the abstract issue of if you were to legalize drugs, what would all the drug dealers do? And people have looked at what, when, you, when, when alcohol prohibition was repealed, what happened then? And many of them, the people who were less committed to crime, just got out of crime. You know, alcohol prohibition presented a certain opportunity, and enough was enough. Others shifted into other types of criminal involvement, going to Las Vegas, you know, gamble, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, and, it's, and, and others tried to hang on to the remnants of the business, you know, that there was an element of getting involved in the distribution of legal alcohol. Now, when you look at what happens in Mexico, my guess is, um, you know, does kidnapping increase if there's less opportunity in drug dealing? Because that's an alternative source. It's possible. It's possible. The problem is, though, when you have an illicit economy, the drug thing is a more dynamic, black market, violence-inducing thing than anything else possible. Now, as Vanda pointed out, it's not inevitable that violence has to attend at this levels with respect to black markets and drugs. This is, to some extent, an aberration. And it's not just what the government does. It's also understanding that both at the sort of society level and then even in the drug trafficking world, there's a point at which there's a burnout factor on these levels of violence, where the violence starts to diminish simply because enough of the drug traffickers no longer see an interest in pursuing it. And so they start to look for their own accommodations with one another and with government. And where the community, you know, communities begin to sort of rise up in some kind of way and take some risks in terms of reducing crime that they haven't taken before. So I think it's important to understand that it's not just going to be an element of the government response. Ultimately, on this point also about this is a broader security issue, a broader question of reducing overall levels of violence. But the most important thing right now is to ensure that the government at least has some notion of sovereignty over all its territory, that there are not criminal gangs that basically claim their territory. Yeah, if I could add just uh, one thing to that. Again, uh, with the entire debate on on drug policy, I think we always have to be aware of the danger of unintended consequences. Mexico is a prime example of that because over the past uh, seven or eight years, the Mexican government uh, has gone after uh, some of the cartels, some more than others. One of the cartels it really targeted and had some considerable success in terms of a decapitation strategy was the so-called Tijuana cartel. But one of the reasons that we have such a vicious turf fight now between the Sinaloa and, and Gulf cartels is that they are picking over the bones of the territory that had been previously dominated by the Tijuana cartel. Now, I'm sure that's not what the Mexican government intended. The Tijuana cartel had been one of the most violent of of the cartels, and I suspect uh, the leaders also forgot to pay their bribes to the Mexican government, so that cartel became the principal target. But in achieving so-called victories against that cartel, the government set in motion these other factors that led to an even greater surge in violence because of the turf fights between the uh, Sinaloa and and Gulf cartels and the strengthening of those cartels so that they could challenge the the Mexican authorities. You know, I feel like I keep repeating myself and, and maybe I'm just not being effective in getting the message across. Clearly, the state needs to take on the organizations. I think it needs to do it in a better way and outline one strategy of how it would go about it. Because the sort of blanket um, unsystematic approach is generating very high levels of violence, is not generating security, and it's generating pushback from the public. So I was arguing that the state needs to think about uh, 
more strategic ink spot expansion and, and concentration of, of first military forces and then tra- uh, transitioning into uh, carabinieri, constabulary forces combined with community policing and finally uh, policing and thinking about how if you move against this cartel and this individual, uh, it will, uh, what kind of repercussions it will have on the violence. Let me just add one more comment I want to make. That um, illegality uh, implies uh, violence and hence uh, the way you undo violence is you remove illegality. And I argue that, that this is that the market in Mexico is an aberration. Illegal markets are usually not this violent. Yes, violence is always an element of illegal markets because there is no judicial mechanism for resolving disputes because trust issues become very problematic. But the market is too violent in Mexico. It's too violent for the Mexican drug business. But the, the illegality does generate illegal markets. Think, for example, of murder. It's obviously illegal, right? This, and this generates market for hitmen, very lucrative market for hitmen. Is the implication that you legalize murder or decriminalize it and say, now you should just rely on public security? Obviously not. Think about the market with smuggling for WMD materials. It's illegal, it generates very lucrative rents, and it's associated with violence. But obviously, this illegal economy is so threatening that I think no one would argue for legalization of this trade. So the question becomes, how do you balance the costs that illegality exposes and the limits of regulation that you have with the costs of uh, the economy in whatever form it is? And... I would argue that for the drug market, the key is focusing on demand so consumption goes down, moving toward public health uh, approach, and making sure that the state remains dominant and can confront uh, drug organizations so that they don't threaten the state in the very element and function of the state, which is to provide public safety. Chris, just one very brief response. I I don't think it's particularly helpful to start uh, comparing uh, the situation with Uh, something like the drug market with a market in murder, the demand for murder is very, very low. The demand for currently illegal drugs is vast, and it, in fact, is growing. You're right on that. You have to have a different model for dealing with those two problems. All right. We are out of time. I want to thank, again, uh, the Open Society Institute and the World Affairs Council of Washington, D.C., for helping to sponsor this event. Please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you.